This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we revisit our fourth ever episode by rediscussing Inglorious Bastards from 2009, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring Brad Pitt as Lieutenant Aldo Rain, Melanie Laurent as Shoshana Dreyfus, or Emmanuel Mimieux, Christoph Waltz as Standard Führer Hans Landa. I hope I got the pronunciation right. Eli Roth as Sergeant Donnie Donowitz, a.k.a. The Bear Jew. Michael Fassbender as Lieutenant Archie Hickox. Diane Kruger as Bridget von Hammersmark. Daniel Bruhl as Frederick Zoller. Till Schweiger as Sergeant Hugo Stiglitz. B.J. Novak as Smithson the Little Man Udovich. Gideon Burkhard as Wilhelm Wicky, Jackie Ido as Marcel, Omar Doom as Omar Ulmer, Sam Levine as Gerald Hirschberg, and August Deal as Sturmbannfuhrer Dieter Hellstrom. Inglorious Bastards was released in the U.S. on August 21, 2009. It grossed $120.5 in the U.S. and Canada, $200.9 million in other territories, for a worldwide gross of $321.4 million against a production budget of $70 million. At the time, it was Tarantino's highest-grossing film, both in the U.S. and worldwide, until Django Unchained from 2012. Made a great number of critics' top 10 lists of 2009, including Roger Ebert's at number 5. In February 2010, the film was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor for Vaults, and Best Original Screenplay. Vaults was awarded the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Inglorious Bastards currently has an 89% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 69 score on Metacritic, and a 4.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd. All right, Dad, you said you don't remember doing the original episode of this, but this was our second episode after COVID lockdown started. Anything you want to look back on from that time? No, not a thing. And I can tell you probably why. I was in such a funk and so depressed being in lockdown that I don't remember a whole lot about it other than being miserable. So on that note, let's move on. Fair enough. So where does this film rank for you among Tarantino's filmography? I know we've kind of asked this question before or at least recently when we did Reservoir Dogs, but I've seen this as high as number one on people's lists. I don't think I've seen it too far past maybe number five. Well, the problem I have is is I have not seen all of Tarantino's films. I have not seen Kill Bill 1 or Kill Bill 2. I have not seen Django Unchained. Well, you're also missing a couple others in there with Death Proof, The Hateful Eight, and uh, Jackie Brown. Correct. I'm missing Jackie Brown, Death Proof, The Hateful Eight, and Kill Bill 2. So probably about half of these. But I would probably put this just ahead of Django for me. But I think for me, Hollywood is number one. And then Reservoir Dogs is probably number two. And then you could make an argument for this 
or maybe Pulp Fiction at three. Well, of the films I've seen, I would agree with you because I loved strategy, the writing, the dialogue, and the whole plot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I liked this, but um, I would say that Once Upon is uh, overall a better film to me than this, although I would say this is probably two for me, maybe, ahead of uh, Reservoir Dogs. I know everybody loves Pulp Fiction, but I had a hard time following it the first time I saw it and thought it was incredibly violent. I guess at the time, my taste in violence was a little more um, intense than it is now. So where does Hans Landa rank in the all-time villains list? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's up there. This is a situation where he made a villain, a Nazi, into somebody that also can be charming and can be very likable at times. But you can see the underpinnings of his evilness, his ruthlessness. And that's, I think, what makes him so uh, villainous is because he was not a caricature of a villain. We had this discussion when I think we talked about Die Hard that Hans Gruber, ironically another Hans, was probably up there as maybe the number one. And we've discussed a couple of the like great villains of all time already on the show. Hannibal Lecter, obviously mentioning Hans Gruber before. We haven't gotten to the Joker. We have that coming up later this year. We haven't discussed Darth Vader yet because we haven't gotten to Star Wars. I would say those are in the running for some of the like quintessential villains. But other than those that are based on franchise IP... I would say this is in the running for maybe the top two or three villains of all time. The way that he constructs this character where he can flip a switch almost within a scene and become ruthless, but then go back to just being kind of happy-go-lucky really does remind me of kind of the way that Heath Ledger's Joker appears in The Dark Knight. And it's a performance that's only a year separated from Heath Ledger's Joker that also won Best Supporting at the Academy Awards. I just love the way that even when he's smiling, he's menacing, and you know he could at any moment stick the knife in. I had seen somewhere where a bunch of psychologists evaluated this film and said that Waltz's uh, portrayal of a sociopath was spot on, that his ability to be charming and jovial, when you combine that with how he can just turn on a dime and be vindictive, nasty, hostile, villainous, murderous. Ruthlessly violent. Yes. And not think anything of it is the epitome of a sociopath. Well, I think... If we had done the original categories going back to that episode, and if anyone wants to pick it up, I think it was our fourth ever episode going back to March of 2020. I think that best performance and most charismatic would probably go to him because he's what really makes the film. Yes, I I agree. I think think he was so fantastic. My exposure to this film was the, the 
person I used to work with or for, or however you want to say it, is a big movie person. And he came in on Monday morning just raving about Waltz's performance because as somebody, he spoke German and he uh, could not believe that somebody could perform and act as well as he did speaking in English, French, Italian, and German. Well, not to preempt myself too much, but the first thing I had up for our Did You Know section of the evening was they were considering abandoning the film because Tarantino was almost to the point of being convinced that he had overwritten Londa and that there was nobody that could actually play him. <laughs> and then they found Vaults, and all of a sudden they knew they had the perfect actor. So the only other real performance for me that truly sticks out in this one, and it's just because I don't know if it's a case of acting that's so bad that it's good, or if it's just the accent throws me off that it's, it's so funny, but Brad Pitt might be, this might have been one of his five best movies. The accent was so over the top, it became great. Some things are, and I make this comment, there's some things that are just so tacky, you know, like dogs playing poker. It's so bad, it's great. You just have to accept it, that it's it's uncouth. And in Pitt's performances, it's so bad with the accent, it's almost so overdone that it becomes great. It's somewhat campy without it being campy. You know, there's there's bad accents. Like we've covered Don Cheadle's in Oceans, any of the three movies, and that one is just truly bad. Or we've covered Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. Or, you know, there have been a ton of... Tom Hanks in... Uh, Catch Me If You Catch Can. Catch Me If You Can. Yeah, his barely Boston accent. Yeah, there are a bunch of classic cases of bad accents. And I don't think this one is like one of those truly terrible accents. However, because of the way that he says stuff and because of the dialogue, he makes lines such as, you're still fighting in a basement. Hilarious. Bonjour, no. <laughs> and, and then how you could say that that's got an Italian accent. I don't know how, but anyway. I don't know. Even down to the, uh, what was the Italian? Gorlami. Gorlami. <laughs> eh. So what is your relationship to this film? This I actually already know. You and I watched this film together. Yes. I think we watched it with, was it Flip? Like in 2009, it was like right after I had uh, gone off to college. I think I came back and I rented it from like family video or something. And we watched this as a potential Oscar movie because we were intrigued. This is before I was kind of in on Tarantino. I think you're right. I just remember watching this and going over and over again how... I don't think your mother would like this. <laughs> well, we do that with a lot of movies. Like, we just did that with Babylon. Oh, yeah. But the other thing that I remember was is how often we thought Vault switching languages going from, I think, especially in that early opening scene, he goes from French to English to German, all in the span of 20 minutes. And towards the end, when it never dawns on you that they're going to try and do Italian that he speaks Italian because 
the minute he speaks Italian, you go, oh, no, he knows exactly that this is all fake. And you don't understand at the time why he just didn't expose it as a plot. All right, so let's give some more background on the movie. Do you want to give a plot summary for us? During World War II, a group of Jewish American soldiers known as the Inglorious Bastards are sent on a mission to Nazi-occupied France to spread fear and chaos behind enemy lines. Led by the ruthless Lieutenant Aldo Rain, Brad Pitt, the Bastards try to operate a covert mission to take down Hitler and the high-ranking Nazi officials at the theater's grand opening night. However, a young French woman named Shoshana, Melanie Laurent, who owns a cinema in Paris and has her own vendetta against the Third Reich, has her own ideas for the opening night, turning the event into a bloody and explosive showdown. Thank you. Did you know? The only movie Brad Pitt made as a leading actor for the Weinstein Company or its previous iteration, Miramax. He has said it had everything to do with wanting to work with Quentin Tarantino and nothing to do with Harvey Weinstein. His animosity for Weinstein stems from an incident in the 90s where Pitt physically threatened the producer upon learning of Weinstein's unwanted sexual harassment of his then-girlfriend, Gwyneth Paltrow. Did you know? This is the first Quentin Tarantino film to win an Oscar for acting. Christoph Waltz for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Waltz would win another Oscar for Tarantino's Django Unchained. Can you name the other movie that had an actor win for a Tarantino movie? Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. There you go. Did you know? In a roundtable discussion with Brad Pitt and Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino said that Till Schweiger had previously refused to put on a Nazi uniform for a film role largely due to being born and raised in Germany and his very real hatred of anything Nazi-related. When Schweiger was told he'd brutally kill a Nazi in every scene, he wore the uniform. He happily agreed to play the part of Hugo Stiglitz. Did you know? To prepare for her role, Melanie Laurent worked as a film projectionist for a few weeks at New Beverly Cinema, projecting mostly cartoons and trailers before shows. The real test set by Quentin Tarantino was for her to screen Reservoir Dogs. Did you know? Colonel Hans Landa, Christoph Waltz, speaks the most languages in the film. Four. English, French, German, and Italian. Did you know? For his performance in this film, Christoph Waltz became one of seven performers to win an Oscar playing a character that mostly spoke in a foreign language. German, French, and Italian. The others are... Do you want to take a guess at any of these? Oh, boy, um, I'm drawing an absolute blank as to any of them. Maurice Chevalier? No. So, Sophia Loren, I'm not sure for which movie. Okay. Robert De Niro, where he won Best Supporting Actor for The Godfather Part Two. Roberto Benigni for his work in Life is Beautiful in the 90s. I'm not sure which movie Benicio Del Toro won, but uh, he did that. Uh, in, I believe, the 90s. Marion Cotillard won for a French movie, and I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, but that was in the mid-2000s. And then recently, I think two years ago, Yoon Yujun was the grandmother in Minari. Did you know? Although the movie is fictional, it was partially inspired by Operation Greenup, a real-life mission by the Office of Strategic Services. In February 1945, Three OSS agents, Frederick Mayer, 
a German-born American spy, Hans Weinberg, a Dutch-born agent who, like Mayer, was Jewish, and Franz Weber, a former Austrian Wehrmacht officer, were parachuted into Austria. For several months, Mayer gathered intelligence on the Germans' Alpine fortress by posing as a Nazi officer and a French electrician. While staying with Weber's family in Innsbruck, Weinberg and Weber radioed the intelligence back to OSS operatives in Barry, Italy. When Mayer's cover was blown by a black marketer, he was captured and tortured by the Gestapo, but refused to give up the other two agents. However, General Franz Hofer, commander of the Nazi forces in western Austria, realized the war was lost and was looking for a way to surrender his forces to the Allies instead of to the Red Army. He had Mayer brought to his house and offered to send a message for him to the OSS offices in Bern, Switzerland, through a German agent. Mayer helped negotiate the surrender of Germany's Austria forces, which took place in Innsbruck on May 3, 1945. Afterwards, Mayer and Weinberg returned to America. In 2012, they were reunited via a webcam interview for the History Channel documentary, The Real Inglorious Bastards. Weinberg died the day after the webcam interview. Weber died in April 2016. Did you know? Quentin Tarantino intended for this to be as much of a war film as a spaghetti western and considered titling the movie Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France. Instead, he gave the title to the first chapter of the film. Did you know? The role of Shoshana Dreyfus's father, Jacob, briefly seen hiding beneath the floorboards in Pierre Lapadite's farmhouse, was played by Patrick Eliash, who, father, Buddy Eliash, was a first cousin of Anne Frank. Did you know? When Lieutenant Aldo Rain, Brad Pitt, pretends to be an Italian actor near the end of the movie, he uses the name Enzo Gorlami, which is the birth name of the director of the original Inglorious Bastards director from 1978, Enzo G. Castellari. And with that, we'll take our first break, and then we'll come back to do the Stanley Rubric. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing Stanley Kubrick's seminal horror film, The Shining, from 1980, written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Scatman Crothers. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, we are going to revisit the Stanley rubric here. Our original score for Legacy, which is up first, was a 7. Did we get this right? Um, I think it's a little low. I went back through and thought about it again. I think it really propelled Valtz's career, and he's done several. I mean, he won another Academy Award after this. He's been in several films. He became a Blofeld in the Bond films. Spoiler alert. Uh, How old of a film is that? Almost nine years. Well, if you need a spoiler alert after nine years, get out of the house more. Anyway, and and then you add in that this started a whole process of Tarantino doing history-type films, alternative history films. I would call it history reclamation. Okay, if that's what you want to call it. So I think that from an industry standpoint, it's a 4.5. Now, for the public, this is the one where I had a little bit of trouble, more or less, and was having a hard time coming up significantly from our previous grade. 
this is not a well-talked-about film, even among Tarantino fans. The ones that are the Tarantino fans, Pulp Fiction is like the pinnacle to a lot of them, I think. But um, you know more of them, and you are in a different age group than I am. I'm just talking about my age group. So I did go with a four because I think this is still well-regarded by most people. It's just not the first film they go to when they talk Tarantino. From an industry standpoint, I would agree that it's it's probably a five because even from the standpoint of some of the people that are in this movie that have gotten bigger, Daniel Bruhl, for example, or Diane Kruger, they had some acting performances before this, but I think this kind of put them on a slightly different trajectory that they could do more auteur-driven dramas slash dramedies, I guess, if you would call it that, because this is kind of a dark comedy in a lot of ways. You're right that this starts Tarantino's kind of second arc of his films. The first set is kind of throwbacks to a lot of crime thrillers that he grew up with. Jackie Brown is kind of a reclamation of the black exploitation era. Kill Bill is a reclamation of the kind of martial arts, kung fu movies of the 70s, and Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction are kind of reclamation projects of some of the crime thrillers he grew up on from the 70s and maybe early 80s. These ones are the historical reclamation projects that he's really focused on in the latter half of his career, and it's really no surprise that this is quite literally the halfway point in what he said are his 10 films. He's made nine up to this point. He's promised he's only making one more, which is why I think for right now he's transitioned to writing books as opposed to trying to write this final movie because I think he really wants to pick the right thing to cap off his final film because realistically you have to expect that if that movie's any good, he's going to win Best Director and it's going to win Best Picture because I think everything has been leading to that moment of celebrating him either even though he has two Oscars for best screenplay at the Oscars previously I think celebrating his final crowning achievement will be something that the Academy Awards is going to want to do and the Academy at large even though it's got more of an international crowd just for how much he's meant to this era of film fans and the auteurs and the people that came up during the 90s but this film starts and why I call it a history reclamation project. He has decided that the Jews needed to have comeuppance on World War II against the Nazis. He decided that a black slave needed to get comeuppance on Southern slave owners in Django Unchained. I've never seen Hateful Eight, but I know that that's similarly along the same lines. He also believed that Sharon Tate needed to get comeuppance on the Manson family. And so each of those movies kind of is a retelling of history in a way that is somewhat fairy tale esque but also has kind of a dark comedy angle to all of them and has his stylistic vision on top of all of them. I also think that there are three of his maybe five best movies in this stretch of four movies, Hateful Eight being kind of the lone exception. But I think for the most part, as far as Tarantino fans, Once Upon a Time, Django, and Bastards, are considered three of his five best in some order or another. And even though Pulp Fiction is normally held up as like the gold standard of Tarantino by the more 
public at large because I think it's the film that's broken through the most. I would say this is actually the second biggest film of his career that kind of broke through to the public. You know how we normally visit that mom is kind of the barometer of whether something's broken through to the public because she just doesn't pay attention to a lot of things. (laughs) I have another friend who is very much like that. He just doesn't see movies at all. And I know if this is either something he's seen or he's heard of, that's broken through. Not only has he heard of this movie, he has seen this movie, Ben, I'm talking about. Yes. And to me, that says this kind of broke through in a way that other Tarantino movies didn't. So both from an industry appreciation, which starts Christoph Waltz's career, launches this second half of Tarantino's back catalog, and kind of puts Brad Pitt on the second arc of his career as he's transitioning to an older actor, I put it at a five for the industry, and I put it at a four for the audience. So that's a nine for me. So what was yours? I believe that was 4.5 and 3.5, so that would be... Eight? Nine. No, that's an eight. No, it was four, excuse me. So it's 8.5. So that's an 8.75 average between the two of us, which raises that category. Impact significance. We originally had a four. I don't know how. Quite literally, if this is one of the most successful movies of Tarantino's career, and I know that it was competing against the same year as Avatar, but this is still when some auteur movies could break through and have big box offices. I mean, the fact that this thing made $300 million for a relatively auteur movie that's a black comedy about Jews killing Nazis, it's not the normal thing. Like, what are we now, 13, 14 years removed? This is not something that Netflix would be releasing on their service next week. Yes. And so from an impact standpoint, again, we go back to the revisiting of it kind of jumpstarts Tarantino's second half of his career. It jumpstarts, to me, Brad Pitt's second half as he kind of transitions from that earlier portion where he's kind of a just a movie star to he's doing these older, more grizzled auteur roles like Moneyball or eventually his Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Those types of things he's taking on and doing more chancy, risky roles, even though he'd been nominated for Benjamin Button ahead of this. I still think that the biggest impact is Vault, as you mentioned before as well, getting his first Oscar and then having more breakthrough roles and kind of being a mainstay in Hollywood. Just not quite like on an A-list actor standpoint, but just below that. Then you throw in the fact that this is nominated for a bunch of awards. It may be one of the few movies other than Avatar that anybody remembers from this year, because I don't think the public at large remembers The Hurt Locker. And I think from an industry standpoint, even though some of the reviews were mixed, it still had a good buzz about it. So because it wasn't completely universally loved like some movies, I had to knock it down a half point for the industry, but I go with about the same score for the audience because I just don't think the audience recognition of this movie has changed all that much. So I have a 4.5 for the industry and a 4 for the audience for an 8.5. For the industry, I went with a 4 because there were some really positive reviews, but the persons or the Critics who didn't like the film were visceral. 
I mean, I remember just in doing some review and some research, Christopher Hitchens referred to this movie as being two hours sitting in the dark and having urine poured over your head. So I can't give it a complete five or anything above that. So that's why I went with, for the industry, a four. Because there's a certain element of people in the industry who just despised it. From a public standpoint, as a historian, the alternate history bothered me initially. It bothers me less now because I think I understand more what Tarantino was trying to do with it. But I'm going to go with a four for the public as well for an eight overall. Even so, that's drastically raised from our initial four. I really don't know how we got to that point other than the fact that Sarah really hates this movie. <laughs> because, of course, your your sister is a historian and is now a master's uh, of military history, so it bothered her for alternate history. It's one of the reasons why I never watch anything that's an alternate history. I just, it bothers me and I don't like it. You're way too much of a purist when it comes to history, when it comes to baseball, when it comes to holidays. You know, take a little bit of a chance. Well, the reason I'm such a purist in baseball is because of the history. I'm a purist to some extent because of uh, even the history when it comes to football, because I love the history of it. I mean, it's wonderful being a Packer fan when you're one of the three oldest franchises in the NFL. You have a history to to look at and to consider and review. It just seems like you're stuck in your ways to me. I'm a 59-year-old man who is a professional. Duh. All right, novelty. Originally, we had a 7.5 for this category. I didn't think it was that far off. I mean, it is a, a war film and such... The novelty comes into who are the heroes. Um, it's not the allies. It's, so it's not saving Private Ryan. It's not Battlefield. It's not a bridge too far. It's not whole host of uh, the uh, the longest day bunch of war films. Okay, so it has an uptick for coming up with a different hero than what's normal. I did give it one bump up, so I went with an eight. Given that Tarantino is known as being somewhat of an audacious filmmaker, I don't think the dialogue is particularly novel even for him because this seems pretty mainstay. But given that this is his first historical reclamation project, you already mentioned that the heroes are the people who are marginalized in history and they're getting their comeuppance through the course of this film but also the intentional historical inaccuracy for the point of, I would say, historical fiction to get to that point and kind of what he has decided is going to be this path of his career. I think that part of it is extraordinarily novel. But then you take that this is the only film of his that's told in pretty much, I would say, what the film is 70% in a foreign language. And given the history at the time of international film, like I'm fascinated by the fact that one of my friends who doesn't see many movies sat down and watched a film that's mostly in German and French <laughs> and didn't mind. Like the amount of people that I've heard from in the past few years, like uh, mom's good buddy, 
who won't watch anything that has a subtitle attached to it, even if it's only a few words. <laughs> Just floors me because there's so much good film that is, you know, even minor subtitles. I know. But this was something that not only did people watch, but accepted. So I think that's novel on itself. I actually went for a 9.5 on this. I think this is one of his most audacious and brave films as far as what he was trying to do at the time. And I think that's why it was met with such criticism at the time, because people didn't understand what he was trying to do. Yeah. So that's an 8.75 average between the two of us. And we'll take another quick break and we'll be right back. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. Annette McCarthy, uh, 64. She was an actress. She uh, had a recurring role in Twin Peaks, Creature, and she was on Baywatch. She did several. I think it was three or four uh, made-for-TV movies. She had a contract. I think it was with ABC or NBC to do those. So she passed this week. Ben Masters, 75, American actor. Passions, All That Jazz, and Heartbeat. He was known primarily for his soap opera work on Passions specifically. I think that was his claim to fame as well as I think his last gig when he had kind of a comeback role about maybe 10 years ago. But he also came up with some musicals in the early to late 70s like All That Jazz. Just a question. Do you rem- do you have any idea? what all that jazz was about? I do not. I've never actually seen the film. I've heard it discussed or mentioned on a few different occasions. I know that it stars... um, Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider. Who was playing Bob Fosse. I see. If you want to watch a film about success and how success can become overwhelming and destroy someone, watch all that jazz. We also lost Dorothy Tristan, 81, American actress. She was in Clute, Scarecrow, and Man on a Swing. Was also co-writer on the original Jaws 2 script, talking about Roy Scheider. Which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) Well, any idea about Clute? Isn't that a um, uh, Steve McQueen movie? Nope. Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda. Okay. Earl Bowen, 81, American actor, was in the Terminator, Bonkers, and World of Warcraft. He was known for a lot for his voiceover acting. He is the definition of a that guy. He's a guy whose name you would never know, but you'd recognize him when he just pops up in something. He was most known for his role in the Terminator film franchise as the psychologist from the original film. And I think he had some other recurring roles within the franchise as it kind of went along. But he did have some specific voiceover work, most famously for Clifford the Red Dog, I believe on the cartoon version that would populate like Saturday mornings. Adam Rich, 54, American actor. Eight's enough. Dungeons and Dragons, The Devil, and Max Devlin. He was a child star. Eight's Enough It was a very popular show with Dick Van Patten as uh, as the lead in that, uh, about a, a father of eight children, and 
Adam Rich played the youngest. A very somewhat tragic career. He had early success when he was 5 to 10 years of age and then never was able to capture anything more than that as an adult. I guess he had been known a lot recently for his work in the mental health space, specifically among those that had come up in Hollywood and were part of the industry for a long time. And that makes it even more tragic that I believe the word is that uh, he may have died of an overdose. Well, and along that line, I will point out to those who are listening in the United States, 988 uh, is the suicide prevention hotline that now exists. So anybody who's having issues of mental health, the thing that I noted today is the number of times as I'm doing this each week, the number of actors, people within the industry who die very young, either due to an overdose or suicide is significant. If you have problems, seek help. Use the number I provided. Well, and I won't even just limit that to actors or anybody within the industry. I'll just post it at large because in my new, I guess, full-time position, I have to handle a lot of death certificates that come into our mailroom on a regular basis. And I want to say about half of them right now are being processed with some type of suicidal nature. So it's becoming a rather outgrown problem uh, for a country that prides itself on allegedly being the best. This is not an area where we've been very effective lately. Well, part of the problem, at least, and I, in addition to all my other responsibilities, I'm the vice president of my local school board, and I made a comment about this during the opportunity we have to speak, and again, asked or suggested to people they seek mental health treatment and that they reach out to others because as social media has made us more connected to so many people that we're beyond, we become more and more isolated, if that makes any sense at all. And so I would encourage people, if you see somebody that you know or that you even casually know and they seem to be having a difficult time even reaching out and being friendly and having a brief conversation could mean a a significant difference in that person's life. We also lost Jeff Beck, 78, English musician, member of the Yardbirds and the Jeff Beck Group, two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Both as a member of the Yardbirds and as an individual musician. During our break, you and I talked about this. Each generation has its musicians, its sound, its unique presentation of music. And I'm the tail end of the 60s into the 70s and 80s, uh, the real rock era. And musicians like Jeff Beck passing, this is going to become more and more tragic for me. We've already lost Glenn Fry. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of these people passing away. They're a little older than me. And um, It bothers me, I guess, (laughs) I'll put it bluntly, to see these people passing because they were so instrumental in the music that defines me and my generation. And so we recognize these contributors here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. 
All right, we'll pick back up on classicness. We left off last time with an eight for this category. So as far as I'm concerned, and I normally let you go first here, but I think we kind of got this one right. Yes, the violence, historical inaccuracy, and dark comedy are all played up to new heights with every Tarantino film, but that's kind of part of the price for admission. I really don't see where there are issues with this movie other than the Weinstein Company title card at the beginning. And so the only real points I would take off is just because I can't give them, simply because there's a lack of timelessness, because it's only been 13 years since its release, and we haven't had enough time to really evaluate this one, although we're far enough past it to kind of start really looking at this as more of a classic by this point in time. But I just, I think the eight is exactly right on. I agree. That's what I had was, uh, in looking at this, I had an eight also. So do you need help with the math on that one? If you'd like to provide it. I think it's an eight. Am I right? You think it's an eight? Yeah. Do you need to, uh, go back to the teacher's that you supervise and uh, get some rudimentary math lessons? Well, I have uh, numerical dyslexia. I think it's calculus is the term. So I'm always a little hesitant. Well, given that you're dealing with single digits, it's really hard to reverse those, especially because eight is a palindromic representation. It could be read forwards and backwards the same way. Well, if you turn eight on its side, it's infinity. Okay, but we're not adding infinity to infinity. Otherwise, it would be infinity and beyond. Well, that's true. Anyway, so that's an eight average between us. Rewatchability. We originally had a five. I think that was drastically driven down by Sarah. (laughs) Yeah. I think this is probably the second most rewatchable Tarantino film, in my opinion. I think this is a little bit more rewatchable because of Valtz's performance and because I think it's a much funnier movie due to Brad Pitt than Reservoir Dogs, which is a little bit more crime thrillery. I've never been a huge rewatchable Pulp Fiction fan. I can appreciate it and I can respect it, but it's not been one that I really love to rewatch. But for me, the all-time rewatchability is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's my favorite of his uh, I, that's the one that seems to spark the most for me. And I think I recently rewatched it again because I'm, I just got an itch to say, I haven't seen it in like six months. Let's put it back on. So I would probably put this in the category of about an eight. I wouldn't go quite that far. Eight's getting into the category of things that I would actively seek out to rewatch. I'm going to go 7.5 just below that, which is, this is a film that, if somebody said, let's rewatch or we, let's watch this, yeah, okay, that sounds great. Or I'm flipping around the stations, I'll sit and watch it for no other reason to watch Vaults because he, he is so good. I mean, I the fact that Tarantino found him, I don't think this film works without Vaults in that role. No, and I think because no one else could really do the role... It, it outsizes the performance. Yeah. So that would put us at a 7.75, right? That is correct. Very good. Wow. Yeah. Human calculator here. So for the original audience score, we had an 8.8. 8. 
For the new audience score, we had a 90% for Google users and 88% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a final of 8.9. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.75 for Legacy, an 8.25 for Impact Significance, an 8.75 for Novelty, an 8 for Classicness, and a 7.75 for Rewatchability, and an audience score of 8.9, giving us a final total of 50.4. And the original score for this one was 40.3. So given that it went up a full 10 points, how (laughs) many spots would you guess that it currently raises on our list? How many spots? Mm -hmm. I don't know. We've had 140 movies to this point. And it was ranked where again? It was 123. I think it went up 100 points or 100, 100 films. A little bit below that. Not by a ton, but... A little bit. So 98, 97? No, it's closer to about uh, 85 or so because it moves from 123 to 39. It'd be tied currently with Apocalypse Now. I can see that. All right, remaining questions then. Why bother shooting everyone in the theater if they're going to burn up anyway? (laughs) Because they were having fun doing it. But you still got the dynamite strapped to your leg. I know. I mean, I, I understand. You are you know you're sacrificing yourself and you're going to die. So why not have the enjoyment of just blowing away a bunch of Nazis? I suppose, but boy, I, I don't know. Blowing them away and then getting out would be the ultimate, I guess, reward to itself. But I, 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 at that point, when you see that the entire place is going to blow up, I'm trying to unhook the damn dynamite from my legs and get the hell out of there i would too and that's that's the part that floors me but i guess i can see it why they would i just don't know if i necessarily would make the same decision well we're not in that same situation so who knows how we'd react fair now one part that strikes me is something i can't necessarily understand because it seems against character during the course of the movie, but Shoshana has shown nothing but coldness and downright rudeness to Zoller through the course of this film, with the exception where she deceives him about closing the door so it seems like she wants to have sex with him. Although, I don't know in that moment why he would think that she would go from zero to 60 that quickly, but he he probably deserves to die for thinking that she would actually be willing to have sex with him in that moment. The part that gets me though, is she seems to want to show a moment of tenderness as he's dying instead of just <laughs> shooting him in the head, just shoot him in the head. He's already moaning on the ground. You know, he's not dead. Just shoot him. I don't know how to respond to that without seeming to be sexist. Okay, so don't. All right, I won't. All right, my last one. For Fassbender's character as being a German film critic that's literally written several novels or books on German film criticism, how do you not know the difference in how Germans display three fingers than the English? (laughs) Again, somebody that deserves to die. There are subtleties in culture that you don't pick up no matter how much you've studied it. 
But film is a representation of culture. I understand. But it, it's understandable. It's not like you were watching Metropolis and M on a loop. Well, okay. In, in this past May, you, I, and your sister were in Germany on vacation with your mother. Okay? If you didn't notice, when we were in the bar and we were asking for more beer, I purposefully held up my thumb and two fingers for three beers. I thought for sure you'd notice. You never said anything. Well, partially because you guys were on vacation. I'm not sure what I was doing, but I definitely was not on vacation. Oh, you were not, huh? That's correct. What were you doing? Any remaining questions for you? The only thing I can say is is that it just seemed like everybody in this film was willing to die for their cause without any question or qualm. I understand there are certain people that way, but the demise and losing your life purposefully, I think people would normally have some apprehension or some point of self-reflection and going, is this really necessary? And I didn't see any of that. So that's my only concern, which is, is I can see one, maybe two people that way, but there were tons of people who were willing to just sacrifice themselves for the greater good. I guess that's part of the notion of the greatest generation that we will probably not get. Yeah. And that's why I think most people have said they're the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. All right. So final thoughts for the week. I really don't have much in the way of recommendations. I think the week that this episode is released is the same week that the new season of Mayor of Kingstown, not to be confused with Mayor of Easttown, also a good show, but uh, the Paramount Plus show Mayor of Kingstown is supposed to be coming out with Jeremy Renner, who I thought did a very good job in season one. It's not a perfect show, but it's very thrilling, and it was somewhat addicting. I think I coursed through the... I guess, I can't remember if it was like eight or ten episodes of the first season in like a weekend. It was just one of those that I, I sat down and I got through like two episodes and then I'm like, you know, that was pretty good. Let's go to a third and then it became a fourth and a fifth and just get, ended up binging the whole thing. But I thought since by the time this is released, we will not have another opportunity to talk about the potential Best Picture nominations before they're released. So let's just get some basic predictions. I'll start here by saying I think that there's maybe about six or seven movies that we can basically assume will be nominated for Best Picture. And I'll see if you agree with me. The Fablemans? Yes. Avatar The Way of Water? Probably. Uh, I'll, I'll only go probable instead of yes. The Banshees of Inishirin. Yes. Tar. Yes. Everything Everywhere All at Once. Definitely, yes. Especially in lieu of Mom. <laughs> oh, that was that was a chore. So that I think is that five then? Yes. With a probably. So Fablemans, Tar, Banshees, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, Elvis? Yes. So that's five with at least one maybe. I feel pretty confident saying that uh, Avatar is going to be nominated. Just due to the strength of its technical awards backing. The other one, I guess, that I think is... I'm pretty confident saying it'll be nominated for Best Picture. Top Gun Maverick. Yes. 
So that puts us at probably seven. I'm going to throw one out, and it's not because it's necessarily a best picture qualifier, but it's Hollywood's. I think Hollywood is going to put She Said on for no other reason than there's a lot of people feeling guilty for not exposing Weinstein before. And so they're going to put this on because it destroys Weinstein. I would be floored at this point if She Said gets into the Best Picture race or gets a nomination at all. I will make a bet. Okay. I will bet you lunch at Thirsty Goat that it gets nominated for Best Picture. Okay. So if we accept that those six are guaranteed, plus I would say Avatar is a pretty well locked in category because you have to get to 10. There are three other spots. You've already claimed you predicted she said. What would be your other two? And I'll give you a couple that are really making the rounds right now. Women Talking. So Women Talking is on the list. Babylon, even though it's kind of gotten a very mixed, there are no middle people when it comes to Babylon. Either you really love it or you really hated it. Well, I really loved it. I might be the median Babylon person. Like, I didn't really love it. I liked it, but I didn't necessarily love it. But there were individual moments of brilliance. That being said, I definitely didn't hate it. And there are some very vitriolic people that hated it. Oh, I, I absolutely loved it because it was funny and it told the story of Hollywood and how Hollywood can basically take anyone and eat them up and spit them out. Okay, so that leaves you with one remaining spot, and there are at least a handful of other movies that could go in there. If you're thinking Babylon is going to get in next to women talking as well. So you still have Glass Onion. You still have The Woman King. The Whale is kind of sifting around the back end of this, although I don't think there's a huge backing for that one at the moment. No. And then you have the three different international feature films to choose from at the moment. Two that you've probably heard of, the Palme d'Or winner Triangle of Sadness, kind of the French New Wave film. Uh You have All Quiet on the Western Front, the German adaptation, the third, I guess, version of that film that originally won Best Picture in 1930. Or you have the, I guess, beloved film all of a sudden that's really making a strong push here at the end that's available on Netflix, the Indian film RRR. I'm going to go with All Quiet on the Western Front. I think clearly the Academy wants to put a foreign language film to diversify worldwide. And I watched All Quiet on the Western Front and was just, I thought it was a phenomenal film. I thought it was well done. The The cinematography was great. The camera, the story, everything about it was very well done, even though it was entirely in subtitles. I know that, (laughs) well, sitting and watching it with two people who speak German, your mother and sister, they're understanding the German. I'm having to read all the subtitles, but I still thought it was very well done and thought I have no doubt that it will win the best foreign language film. See, I'm not so sure about that. I think there are a lot of really good contenders. And if you think it's any indication of where international feature is going, the Golden Globe went to Argentina 1885. 
which is the last of most people's list of potential nominees this year. I think they've pretty much closed it down to about a pretty well-guaranteed five, being the same ones that were up for the Globes this year. But given that that one, which is a fairly courtroom thriller, I would say that the others probably have a little bit more staying power, but I could see one of any of the five of them really being up for Best International Feature and not being all that surprised. I just think it's a really strong year for International Feature this year. Okay. I haven't seen them, so... So then your nominees locked in are the six that we locked, Avatar, and then the other three that you mentioned, Women Talking, Babylon, and All Quiet on the Western Front. Yes. So I think Triangle of Sadness is going to get in as the international option on this one. I'd like to say RRR is going to make the big push, but I just really think that there are a lot of international voters that are not necessarily from the Asian countries yet. And so it's more likely that a French or European flair or international crowd that is now part of the ever-expanding academy is more likely to vote that movie in, which I think has a lot of backing from that side of it, especially since it's not technically a foreign language film. Almost the entirety of it is in English. But I would guess that that is probably the one that's going to break through. And Whichever of them gets ends up getting nominated for Best Picture, unless there's two of them, I would say is the most likely then, and we'll kind of know who wins Best International Feature ahead of the awards, and that'll give us some indication. But I would guess that that one is the most likely to probably break through into Best Picture category. So that leaves me with two left. I think because it's going to get a bump once it gets on Netflix, and it was still kind of a popular movie when it was in theaters, It's gotten a lot of good reviews for a lot of its acting, its promotion of black women. I'm going to go with The Woman King as another prediction for me. And then this is just kind of one I'm trying to wish into existence that I really love the movie. I thought it should, the original one should have been up for best picture the first time. I'm going to go with Glass Onion as my kind of wild card. Okay. We'll see, uh, who has a a little bit better uh, predictive skills on these first ones, even though they don't count for our annual bet. Yes, I'm I'm, uh, going to disclose again another consideration I had for the annual bet for you, Animal House. Which is the one I told you to pick for me last year. I know. I know how much you hate it. Well, we're going to have to cover it on the show eventually. I don't know if that's really outside the realm of possibility. I know. Although I, I will admit that Batman and Robin and just me (laughs) quoting Schwarzenegger in a really bad Austrian accent will be worth the price of admission. I I think if if I do win and I pick that film, you have to spend at least five minutes discussing the bat nipples. I can do that. I mean, just finding interviews Clooney did with Graham Norton alone is going to be enough to fill five minutes. Probably. So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Next week, we are discussing Stanley Kubrick's seminal horror film, The Shining. Written and directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Scatman Crothers. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. 
Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.